Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So there are tons of books out there about how to improve yourself, how to be happier, how to be more productive, how to be less angry, etc. But often these books, they offer prescriptive advice on things you should add to your life or things you need to do more in your life to get to the goal you want. But sometimes the best way to achieve a goal is to subtract from your life and stop doing the things that are making you miserable. Well, that's the approach my guest today took in his latest book, How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Are Already Using. His name is Randy Patterson. He's a psychologist. And today on the show, Randy and I discuss the things that he's seen with his, uh, his patients, that the common lifestyle choices they make, thinking patterns that they take part in that make them miserable, um, and what that you can do to eliminate those from your life. Um, so if you suffer from depression or know someone who suffers from depression, you'll get a lot of insight from the show. We also just tackle anger. We discuss how this, you know, a focus on self-improvement can actually backfire and like, make your life more miserable. And we also discuss assertiveness. Uh, Randy wrote a great book that I referenced in an article about assertiveness a few years ago. So if you have problems telling people no or asking for things that you want uh, without having a panic attack, uh, you'll find that part of the podcast uh, useful as well. Um, make sure to check out the show notes after you listen at aom.is slash miserable, where you can find links to resources we mentioned throughout the show. So without further ado, Randy Patterson and how to be miserable. Dr. Randy Patterson, welcome to the show. Well, I'm glad to be here. Uh, so you're a psychologist and you've got a new book out and it's called how to be miserable 40 strategies that you're probably already using. Um, and I love the, the the title of the book because it's inspired by a question that you asked in a discussion group for patients you were treating with mood disorders. And uh, instead of asking them what they could do to be happier, which would you think would be the normal question you'd ask people who were suffering depression or anxiety, uh, you asked them what they could do to make themselves feel even worse. So I'm, why ask that question and what insights did your patients and you get from the, the subsequent discussion? Well, the patients in that group uh, were just out of hospitalized care for depression, and the average number of hospitalizations were two, but it went up to into the 30s for uh, a couple of them. And so they'd been through a lot of treatment. They'd been through a lot of depression. The depression had been with them for a long period of time. And so they were kind of understandably skeptical. They didn't want to be sold on something. People have been said, oh, this is this is the wonderful cure, and then that didn't work. And then somebody said, well, this is the wonderful cure, and then that didn't work. 
Uh, and so they didn't need somebody else doing that. Uh, the longer somebody's been in mental health, the less susceptible they are to cheerleading. And cheerleading for, for clients like that, where you're saying, oh, look, here's the research. I'll, I'll show you this article that proves that cognitive behavior therapy works brilliantly, blah, blah, blah. It tends not to work very well. So we had to find some way of getting around that skepticism, and we wanted to do it right off the bat in session one. And I knew that trying to, you know, indoctrinate them in the wonders of CBT wasn't going to work. So uh, I thought, well, well, let's try something a little bit different. And uh, I've always found that one way of enhancing clients' receptivity and, and, and having people actually remember what you do between sessions is, in effect, to act strangely. Uh, because people will then say, you'd never believe what this weirdo I saw uh, just did. Anyway, uh, so I would say point to the middle of the table, because we met around a large table, and and said, well, I, I imagine most of you have noticed the $10 million sitting there, which, of course, there wasn't $10 million sitting there. Imagine that you could win all of that money by making yourself feel even worse than you do right now. Maybe tomorrow, maybe between 11 and 11.30, you know, for just half an hour, if you can make yourself feel worse than you do now, you get the money. How would you do that? Like, what are the strategies that you would use to affect your mood, to change your mood in a negative direction? And that people could buy into. Uh, They kind of thought it was a bit weird, but they could at least do it. And I would go around the room, because at that point we were still in session one, so we wanted everybody to talk. You need to break the ice. And then I threw it open, and people began talking over each other. They began coming up with different ideas, and I was writing all of these on the board. And, and the main stopper of this thing was, it was you know, that I, I couldn't actually write these things down fast enough, listen to country music, curtain songs, all kinds of stuff people would come up with, and they would begin to laugh, which was very strange. Because, you know, you don't hear a lot of laughter in a, a building that has four psychiatric wards in it. So they kind of got into it, which was lovely. And it probably would have been good enough just for that, that you know, enough that we got them to laugh. But there were two elements, I think, really, that, uh, that they got out of it. One is that they realized they did have at least a little bit of control over their mood. They could make it worse if they wanted to. Now, that's not hugely useful, but if you do have that little bit of control, maybe you can get a little bit more. So it sort of cracks open that possibility. The second thing that people got out of it is they realized something. Wait a minute. I'm already doing some of the things on this list. I'm already binge eating ice cream. I'm already avoiding all exercise. I'm already isolating. I'm already closing the curtains and sitting in the dark. I'm already doing these things. And so they began to recognize that possibly change wouldn't involve taking on anything brand new that they'd never done before. Change might just mean stopping what they were already doing, at least in part. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because, like you said, that second part, a lot of the things that the people were – the reason why they were miserable, they were already doing those things. And you talk about in the book that – I mean, it's kind of bizarre that – you know, not just uh, individuals or with severe mood problems, like severe depression or anxiety that requires them to be in a hospital, but like just everyone, all human beings are really good at making themselves 
so feel miserable. Um, despite living in one of the safest, most affluent times in human history, why are we so good at making ourselves feel terrible and miserable? Partly, I, I think it's the um, it's the timeline that we look at. If we look at, okay, I want to feel really good and I want to have a good life and I want to be, you know, doing well a year from now, I kind of know what to do. I know what to eat. I know where to go. I know that I need to build up my social network. I know I need to clean out that garage. You know, uh, exercising would be a good idea, that kind of thing. But if I'm particularly stressed out and I'm feeling overwhelmed by my life, my time horizon gets yanked inward. And I begin thinking things like, oh my gosh, I just need to get through today. You know, the heck with tomorrow. Tomorrow I will take that when it comes. Right now I just need to get through today. And if that means watching three hours of television, then I will do that. And I do not have the energy to get myself out exercising or to plan this stuff for next week. I just want to do this. So what often makes us happy in the short term, or at least slightly less miserable in the short term, is what makes us more miserable in the long term. So as our mood declines, our horizon tends to come in. We start making these short-term decisions even more. And I think there's another fact, and that is that our society kind of encourages us to make these choices. Our society encourages us to be very competitive. Our society plants fast food places all around us, you know, that serve very, very, very flavorful, but not very nutritious food. We have cars and parking lots everywhere, valet parking in front of any restaurant that you might want to go to, or uh, I've never actually used valet parking, but that's an example. Um, and all of these things enable us to get absolutely no exercise. We're very much like a, a children's movie that came out a few years ago, Wall-E, where all of the population was essentially in mobile uh, day beds that allowed them to avoid all exercise. But this is actually not good for us. This is not how we developed as a, as a species to be, able to, um, to be able to cope. We're designed for movement. So a lot of the elements of the design of our culture encourage us uh, into a lifestyle of passivity, bad food, isolation, and so on, that just wind up making us more miserable. Yeah, I thought that's an interesting point. Um, Oftentimes, individuals who are in a funk or who are suffering severe depression, like they know the thing they need to do to not be miserable, um, but Instead, there's that tendency, like you said, because the, the, the time frame collapses. They just want to do what makes them feel good now. They do the thing that keeps them making, keeps making them feel terrible. Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to resist. One of the things that people often think is, okay, if, if, uh, there are really only two paths here. There's, there's eat the rest of the chocolate chip cookies. Or start an exercise program where I'm doing it six times a week and eat properly and eat a nutritious meal three times a day and do this and do that and do that. They think, I do not have the energy for this revolution in my life. Uh, maybe I'll have it someday, but I certainly don't have it now. So uh, I guess the only other path for me is to kind of give in almost. Yeah. And what we try to do in therapy is... is kill the revolution, in effect. That's, we're like, let's get rid of that. We'll forget that. 
We're just going to work incrementally. Yeah. I mean, so is that the key of, oh, you know, getting, killing that revolution is just being incremental about it, not trying to get drastic changes extremely fast? Because I think, I think it's what people want. They want the magic bullet. They'll make them feel better right now. Yeah, if you go to the self-help bookshelves, for example, it's basically the, the shelves of, of, of magic bullets. And the revolutions just tend not to work very well. So what we need to do is say, okay, well, forget getting to the end of the trail. Let's, uh, let's see what's one step down the trail. And if you can work that way, you begin setting up a bit of a positive spiral. You know, you, you exercise a little, and it gives you gram more energy. It's just, you know, insignificant, not very much, but it enables you to do one more thing. And frankly, that evening you sleep just, well, 10 minutes more, which is not very great. But that little bit more sleep gives you just a little bit more focus at work, almost undetectable. But that enables you to feel just a little bit more positive about your uh, about your life. You know, and that may give you the energy to say, well, maybe I'll go exercise one more time and maybe walk another block and so on. And that kind of spiral effect begins working in a positive direction rather than in the negative direction. So uh, let's talk about uh, some of the strategies that people use to make themselves miserable. And uh, some folks who are listening are probably using some of these strategies. Uh, The first section of your book discusses lifestyle habits. You mentioned a few already, um, poor eating, lack of exercise, but are there any other lifestyle habits that people use or have adopted that make themselves feel miserable? Yeah, there are a number in the, in the book, and I suspect I haven't exhausted the list, but one of them is maximizing your screen time. Um, there are reasonable surveys now about the number of hours that people spend planted in front of a television set or surfing the internet or playing video games. And it's a mammoth proportion of a person's waking hours. Uh, I once did the math on this. If you're a smoker, uh, we all know the 90-year-old who's been smoking since he was 10 uh, and no, no negative effects. Uh, but on average, uh, if you're a smoker starting in your teen years, I think the figure is, uh, on average, you can expect to lose about seven years of your life. But if you look at the waking hours, the proportion of waking hours that people spend just sort of sitting passively receiving entertainment or surfing randomly on the Internet, uh, we're talking about a reduction of possibly 20 years of your lifespan. Not that you'll die 20 years earlier, but 20 years of your life will be occupied doing that instead of the things that actually sustain you, the things you'll be glad to have done once you wind up on your deathbed. Look back. So maximizing screen time is is definitely one of the strategies. And minimizing social life, which frankly, those two kind of go together. So those are two of Right. It seems like the screen time is uh, double whammy. It hits a lot of other... It keeps you sedentary. Um, mm-hmm. keeps you isolated, but, but that you told, you know, solitude in moderation is actually good for you, which you talk about in your book. Um, yep. but then also you talk about, um, you know, it just, you're constantly looking for information. And as you mentioned in your book, our brain is really uh, keyed to negative information. And so you probably spend a lot of your time surfing the web, looking at horrible stories that might not really affect you personally. Uh, and you don't really it doesn't really, I don't know, there's nothing you can do with that information, but like you're keyed in on looking for that. 
Right. We spend an awful lot of time, you know, trying to find about uh, to find out about the, the latest disaster that happened a continent away and looking for the video of it and so on. And if we haven't really stepped back, you know, we sort of justify it by saying, well, I should be informed, you know, if I'm going to donate money, I need to know what's actually happened. But do we really need to see that video, you know, the 17th time? Uh, there's something in our brain that makes us want to do that. And you can see it, of course, as you're driving in any car accident, virtually everybody slows down. And we're all very so we're all very critical of those people. You know, oh, they slow down. I just want to see the gore on the accident. Um, but in fact, we're sort of wired for that. We're wired to, you know, look at the bad stuff. And, um, and the Internet is a, is a lovely uh, source of it. You know, and 24-hour news channels as well. well I want going back to that screen time. One interesting thing you mentioned in the book is that, you know, I always assume that, well, yeah, people screen times is, is the the same. People are surfing the internet more, so they're replacing that with uh, replacing television with surfing time on the computer. But you show statistics that people are actually no, it's like they're still watching the same amount of TV as they were a few years ago, but they're just adding on computer time to that. Yes, and that's even when you consider the television that's sort of being transferred to to the uh, to the computer. So if you're watching uh, a streaming service, for example, some television show on a streaming service, uh, and consider that you know, score that if you like as television, the uh, additional time that you spend randomly uh, surfing is actually eating away the rest of the time. So eating away meal times, it's eating away social life, and so on. It's not eating away the television programming. I thought this is a really interesting section in your book. Uh, it's one of the ways you can make yourself miserable is setting what you call vapid goals. So I think uh, people have heard of smart goals, where you know they're specific, miserable, attainable, or achievable. Um, I forget what the R means. Uh, uh, realistic. Realistic, usually. and they have a time yeah. frame. Um, so, yeah. how do vapid goals differ from smart goals? Well, uh, I essentially just took the smart goals and and sort of flipped them on their head. And it sounds, you know, faintly ridiculous, but in fact, the vapid goals are what we often set if we're not thinking about it. So V for vague, in other words, you have no idea how you're going to do this. You set a goal of accomplishing something, but you're not entirely sure how you're going to do it. Usually, especially if you're not feeling that great, that'll stop you. Amorphous. Uh, so that there's no finish line. There's no sense of achievement. One of the reasons that small goals are a good thing to set, small and achievable goals, is that you catch yourself passing finish lines. It's like, okay, well, the entire house is not clean, but that closet is now cleaned out. That's done. And that done feeling you never get if the goals are amorphous. Pie in the sky, so you want them to be too ambitious. So... Uh, I haven't been exercising and uh, following up. Maybe I've been sitting around watching a lot of television or, or surfing the internet. And my goal is to go in the uh, the marathon next month. Well, guess what? That's never going to happen. That's a recipe for failure. Um, irrelevant, you know. So we'll try things that are kind of not really serving us in terms of our ultimate goals. Uh, so we'll try and find out everything that we can on some. Uh, arcane topic rather than actually targeting uh, things that are really going to serve us. And uh, for time defined, we switched it to delayed. 
In other words, I will do it later, or, and especially the, the, the real killer, I'll do it when I feel like it. Because I never feel like it, it ain't never going to get done. Right, right. And I can see how, yeah, particularly if you're in a funk, the temptation would be to set vapid goals. And you, they probably, people who set vapid goals, they feel like they're doing something, right? Like I'm setting goals. but uh, setting goals, you know, get in shape, eat well, better see more people never seems to work out though for those who embrace the impossible the defender 110 is up for the adventure this iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design the exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity the defender capability is legendary whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions durability has been tested to the extreme cargo capacity means more room for your gear And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money and things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time. Uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. 
That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Right, right. Well, be, before we continue on, I think this is an important question to ask. I mean, what is the opposite of miserable? Um, because like you said, the self-help books, they sell this magic bullet mentality and that if you do these things, you're going to be happy and just joyful all the time and feel, I don't know, just just glad to be alive and everything. I mean, what what are we aiming for when we're not trying to be miserable? I think what we're aiming for is uh, a diverse appreciation of all aspects of human experience, which is not as satisfying uh, a sounding thing as saying that what we're after is happiness 24 hours a day. One of the points that I make in the book is that we are equipped with all kinds of emotions. We're equipped with sadness, with anxiety, with happiness, with joy, with love, with disappointment, um, fear, all of these emotions. And they're essentially a behavioral guidance system. They're all there for a purpose. And so this idea that, to some extent, psychology is on the hook for, that we've been promoting this idea that, yeah, you should be happy 24 hours a day, and partly what that's doing is that's setting the bar so high, unrealistically high, that if you're not doing that, you feel like you failed. So to some extent, trying to be happy all the time is serving the, serving the, the, the goal of being more miserable because you feel like you're a complete failure. We've also been saying that if you're not, you know, pretty much unrelentingly happy, there's something wrong with you. You know, maybe you have a disorder of some kind. Maybe you should be swallowing a pill of some kind. So I think what we're after instead is, uh, yes, being anxious, yes, being fearful at times, yes, feeling sad and, and able to tolerate a sad morning and say, yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm still going to go do the thing that I had planned anyway, even though I don't feel that enthusiastic at the moment, that kind of thing, you know, to be able to keep going. Um, and I think the more accepting we are of negative emotional states, the more, the less severe they are, and the more the positive emotional states come in. So uh, Sartre, the uh, existential novelist philosopher, uh, he famously said, "Hell is other people." Um, what do miserable people do differently from not miserable people when it comes to dealing with? other people out there. So, you know, other people aren't hell for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, if you're feeling lousy, the lousier you feel, the more likely you are to have a motivational shift away from, Hey, wouldn't it be fun to go out with those friends tonight toward a tendency to isolate? Some people go the other way, but 
generally speaking, it's a tendency to isolate. The more you isolate, the more you begin to become a little bit suspicious about what are they thinking about me? Do they think that I'm an interesting person? Maybe not. Maybe I should isolate. Maybe I'm actually doing them a favor by isolating, that kind of thing. So they tend to uh, move inward. I keep saying they. I, I would say we. Right? I'm trying to divide this away from the, uh, the clinically depressed people. It's as we get more miserable, we're more likely to have a tendency to isolate. But what about when we're around other people? Uh, one of the things that, uh, that we might do is downward comparisons, which are very subtle, but they're amazing. And most of us do it to at least some degree. So the, the example that I give in the book is you go to a party and you look around and you find the one person who's really brilliantly dressed. You haven't talked to them. You don't know anything about them. They're really great, you know, dressers, let's say. And then you look down at what you put on, you know, very proudly into your own place. And, and you realize, oh, yeah, okay. So I'm not nearly as well dressed as they are. Um, and what you're doing is you're comparing yourself to that one outlier. Then you listen to this one person talking about this amazing achievement they had, and then you look at yourself and you think, oh, I haven't done that. And you ignore the fact that neither has anybody else at the party. So you go through the party and you're looking for people who are outliers, the extremes, the on the positive end, and we compare ourselves downward against those people ignoring all of the others, and then we switch to another person who's an outlier on another characteristic. And so what we wind up doing is feeling, you know, uglier, dowdier, uh, stupider, uh, less socially fluent. We, we can find ourselves uh, feeling negative about every possible social characteristic. And uh, so downward comparisons are are uh, a really interesting thing that we tend to do. I suspect that there's probably the odd person who doesn't do them. I just have never met them. Um, so another thing you talk about in the book that makes people miserable is um, not setting boundaries. And mm. uh, your previous book uh, that I'm a big fan of, and we actually referenced in an article I wrote a few years ago, uh, is the Assertiveness Workbook. And it explores this whole idea of boundary setting. And I think it's a big problem for a lot of people. I think we often think of assertiveness as, I don't know, I remember the trope from the 80s and 90s where women, business women would take assertiveness training so they could make it in the, the man's world of business, whatever. Um, but it seems like, I imagine it's a problem for men as well. Um, before we delve into like how to set boundaries and sort of be more assertive. Can you describe what is the difference between assertiveness and being aggressive? Well, I, I, in that book, I use a stage metaphor. And if you're being aggressive, it's kind of like you're allowed to be on stage and your mission is to essentially push everybody else off and everybody else has to, uh, in effect, be your audience. Uh, another way of putting it is my way or the highway. And a lot of people imagine that's what assertiveness is all about. Assertiveness is about getting your own way. Actually, that's more the aggressive posture. And it works. You know, if you're really pushy, you can pretty much get your own way once, but then people don't show up for the follow-up. They don't show up, you know, more than once. Uh, they start drifting away to the exits. Assertiveness is more about an equality between you and other people. You can't 
so do they. And so the metaphor is that everybody is allowed up on stage. Um, the, the third major style is the passive style, where you appoint yourself audience to the world and everybody else gets to you know, call the shots and you don't. The passive and aggressive styles, if you think about the behavior that's engaged in them, passivity is really avoidance, particularly of conflict. Aggression is really about a kind of fight, usually a verbal fight or a verbal uh, trying to establish dominance over someone else. And if you think about those words, fight and flight, they were both related to the stress response. So both of them are associated with an activation of the stress response. Assertiveness is, generally speaking, a little bit more calm. You're more relaxed, you're more open, and it's about you and the other person coming to some um, mutual uh, goal. Sometimes, if you're the boss or if you really need something, you might push the point. But it's not necessarily about bulldozing your way through the crowd, which people often imagine that's what assertiveness is all about. What are the the biggest barriers uh, that keep people from taking a more sort of approach? I mean, well, I mean, I guess I think a lot of, I think some men might not have a problem with the aggressive approach, but I think there's a lot of people who are maybe they're used to taking a more passive approach. What keeps them from, you know, sort of meeting people on on equal footing and and uh, trying to work something out instead of just going along with what everyone everyone else wants? Well, part of it is. Um... It depends on, on which style you're more prone to using. If you're more on the passive style side, often one of the big barriers for you is a fear of conflict, right? If I try and push my point, if I say, actually, I disagree with what the committee is doing right now or whatever, um, I'm going to get attacked. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to handle the attack. Uh, I'd be able to say it once, but if somebody comes back at me and you know, argues against my position, uh, I'm just going to completely lose it. Uh, either I'll be hor- horribly humiliated, or I just won't be able to justify my position. If you're uh, more aggressive, the theory is, okay, if I tone it down the aggression and I stop all of these dominance postures with these people, I'm not going to get my own way, and everything's going to go astray. There's not enough strength in my argument. There's not enough strength in my point to actually carry the day. Uh, the only way I'm going to do this is by forcing people. And also, you know, if I'm a boss, uh, it might be the only way I get things done around here is by lighting a fire under people. Those people often are not looking at their turnover rates. Right. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's one thing, is a fear that assertiveness simply will not work one way or another. Another is your own history. You know, people are used to you. They're used to you being a certain way. And when you change, they're often thinking, well, what's going on? Like, why are you like that? So if you've always been the person to say, oh, no, any restaurant is absolutely fine with me, uh, whatever you would like. If one day you suddenly say, well, actually, you know, I'd kind of like to go to a Greek restaurant, people will be thinking, oh, my gosh, you must be furious. Like, what must it have taken for this person whose role in life is to go along to actually start standing up? Maybe maybe, maybe he or she is feeling hugely resentful, and, and they make a big deal out of it. They also may not pay attention because they're just used to you going along. Okay, you 
instead of regress chop. Big deal, right? I know I can get my own way, so I'll just bulldoze over you and ignore the fact that you even said a regress chop. Um, so that's part of it. But that's sort of the history problem. Gender is another one. Um, women gen- genuinely do have more difficulty with this. Uh, take a, a political battle such as, uh, you know, a presidential primary race. Um, a male who says something in a certain tone might be regarded as strong, decisive, or firm. A woman who used exactly the same tone will be dismissed as shrill. That's sort of a Herodon uh, figure. Um, and so women often find it's much more difficult and the, and the amount of skill required is greater. It shouldn't be, but often it is. Yeah. So that's one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, how do you, the way you describe it in the, the assertiveness workbook, it sounds like assertiveness is a skill. It's not sort of a mindset. It's more of a skill that you, you practice to develop. Is that correct? Yeah, I find that there's people who, who are saying like, um, oh yeah, I'm just not the assertive type. And, and I point out that it's a little bit like saying you're not the driving type. You know, and maybe, sure, maybe you don't want to be a Formula One driver, but you could probably still learn to drive. It is a set of skills. It's not a personality. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting too. I remember um, I interviewed another guest. He talked about he had a friend who's this champion boxer, big bulking guy, just demolish people. Um, but he was, this guy was afraid of confronting his gardener who was overcharging him. Um, and you think like, wow, you, you pummel people in the ring, but you can't just say, Hey, I think you're overcharging me. So it sounds like, uh, he needed to practice in that area of being assertive. Um, you might be assertive in, and I think it's, I think it's even possibly assertive in some aspects of your life, but not in others. Correct. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's a great thing to do in therapy. You know, if I can find an area of a person's life where they're actually already mastering and using certain skills like assertiveness and try and get them to, in effect, channel themselves uh, in this other area of their life, in your marriage, with your son, that kind of thing. Uh, sometimes it doesn't transfer very well. You know, if you're a cop and bringing your home your cop style to your family is not necessarily always the greatest idea. But... Um, if you've got the skill in one area of your life, often you can figure out how can I, how can I access that part of myself in another? Right. So at the end of your book, uh, your latest book, how to be miserable. And we talked about this a bit that, you know, the, that pursuing happiness and self-improvement can actually backfire and make us miserable. Um, if that's the case, what approach do we take with our lives? If we, we want to improve, we want to get better, but how do we do that without it hamstringing us to actually reaching the goal we want? Well, I guess uh, I, I would go to something that I often go to that feels vaguely unsatisfying, which is the middle path, you know, the mushy middle. That's fine. It's okay for us to be doing a little bit of uh, work on ourselves. I, I for example, uh, my avocational period. I'm uh, growing peaches. Okay, so I'm not very good at it, frankly. And, uh, okay, I can read books and try and get better at that. Um, but if you're spending your entire life trying to improve yourself, in effect, making up for a deep perception of inner faultiness, then you're never actually getting to the point of living your life. I see a lot of people that are 
the only thing they ever read is self-help. The only thing that they watch is inspirational video and that kind of thing with the idea that I'm going to better myself. I often ask a person like that, what would you do if you were already good enough? Let's accept for the moment, just for the sake of argument, this idea that you have deeply, deeply felt that you are not good enough. Fair enough. What if you were? What would you be doing then? What would you read? What would you be doing? Where would you go if you if it wasn't about curing yourself or something? And and at that point I can say, well, what if we were to leapfrog the problem and say, what if you were just to pretend you were good enough? You know, like let's not even argue the point. Let's just try and pretend you're good enough and you know, read Dickens, put away the self-help, you know, or read the murder mysteries that you like, at least some of the time, even though you're not good enough. And what would happen, possibly, is that that perception of being good enough would begin to seep in. It's not that we would give up on self-improvement. It's that we would, um, we would begin to actually live our lives. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah. that's what it's for. That's what the self-improvement is for. Right. I love that approach because, and I think the, the weird thing is, is that by doing the things you would have done if you were good enough, you're probably naturally going to do things that are going to improve your lot in life. So you can do yeah. those things that you enjoy or you would yeah. do if you were good enough. Yeah. I think that there's a part of our brain that's sort of planted in there and doesn't really know what's going on. It's almost like there's a Martian in our head going, I, I, I don't know who this person is or how I got here, but let's try and figure things out. And it watches what we're doing. And if all that we're doing is improving ourselves, you know, I'm going to this therapy and I'm that therapy and I'm reading these self-help books and I'm trying to make up for all of my flaws and errors and things like that, the, the Martian inside is going, hmm, this guy is spending an awful lot of time doing this. He must be terrible. And we begin sort of reinforcing that sense of faultiness by trying to overcome our sense of faultiness to some degree spending at least some of our time pretending that we're good enough and saying, right, what would you do then? In effect, leapfrogging the problem can actually help you. Well, Randy, we, uh, we, this has been a great conversation. Um, where can people learn more about uh, How to Be Miserable and your other work? Well, uh, the book is discussed at uh, uh, Goodreads and is available online. But I've also got a lot of other stuff on my website, which is randypatterson, all one word, dot com. And Patterson, annoyingly for my entire life, is spelled with one T. Uh, I don't know if you will find it. Uh, and, on, and there I have uh, online courses, uh, information about my books, my talks, that kind of thing. Great. Well, Randy Patterson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, very much pleasure talking with you, Brett. My guest today was Randy Patterson. He's the author of the book, How to Be Miserable. You can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about Randy's work at randypatterson.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show and have got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.